Guilt is wasted. This has nothing to do with white guilt. White guilt is something that someone throws up when they don't want to have the conversation. I, you know, I didn't have slaves. No one said you had slaves. But I am, what I am saying is I'm going to ask you some questions that help you see that just because you worked hard for everything you've ever gotten doesn't mean you haven't experienced cultural systemic privilege. Alrighty, welcome in, boys and girls. Another week, Alabama politics this week with Josh Moon and David Person. There we go. Look at this, man. We this uh, this Zoom thing, man. We're getting there slowly but surely. Slowly <laughs> but surely. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm actually spoiled now. I don't have to. I don't have to get dressed. I'm only dressed from the waist up, you know. I, the rest uh, see, just... I don't need to know all that. I, see, I don't want this to turn into a Jeffrey Tubin situation here, man. Now. You make sure you kill that camera. Hey, right. hey. I switch computers. I actually switch computers. <laughs> yeah, that was his story, too. That was his story. Uh, uh, but no, it's uh, hey, listen, that's uh, another another good week. Uh, yeah. We're coming up on uh, on the holiday week uh, here. Not that, you know, a lot of people are, you know, I think slimming down uh, Thanksgiving, uh, you know, to, to avoid death. Uh, for especially mm. for the older folks and uh, more susceptible folks in your family, and so, uh, but it's a it's, it's a nice uh, nice day, nice few days coming up, and uh, and hopefully we're we're uh, just uh, programming note before we get too far into this. We're gonna we're gonna take sure. next week off uh, yeah. just because of, of the Thanksgiving holiday, and uh, you know when this thing would be produced. I, I I have a hard time believing you guys are gonna be looking for a good podcast <laughs> over the uh, just, no yeah they're gonna be looking so, at football and movies and whatever mm-hmm. else yeah not yeah, listening to the podcast uh, yeah laying in a uh in a, in a turkey days uh at that point I, you know i don't know what what you're planning uh there what the family is planning or anything but we're we're still gonna have a a, a skinny thanksgiving uh so mm-hmm. to speak and uh with just uh with just the folks that we normally hang around anyway uh you know right uh, my parents, uh, you know, my daughter's, uh, you know, Andy Lou's, Andy Lou's grandparents on both sides and, uh, and, uh, my brother and his wife and, uh, my wife's brother or sister and, and, uh, her husband. And that's going to be it. Uh, you know, so, yeah. uh, that, that no, makes these sense. are all folks that we've been around. So <clears throat> yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. I think my son is, uh, gonna, gonna swing on through and he's, uh, a college student out of state, but I think he's going to swing on, swing on through and, um, and we'll hang out a little bit. And, um, we might even go see uh, one of his, uh, one set of his grandparents, um, Mm -hmm. that, that live, uh, live not too far from North Alabama. So, uh, we'll probably do something real low key like that. But yeah, I mean, it's a skinny Thanksgiving. It's not what I normally do you know i'm normally around 20 or 30 people in and yeah. out lots of activity that's just not going to be that way this year yeah no so we're the same way you know we're you know we're, we would normally be all over the place you know and trying mm-hmm. to balance and i, I guess it may hopefully hopefully we're going to be able to, to get to that you know around christmas uh you know with uh, because some of that some of the people, you know, according to according to what what we're hearing, uh, anyway, we're gonna get a we're gonna get some level of a vaccine for the more susceptible people that are out there, and so mm. uh, and those 
the people in in my family that should uh you know that we wouldn't be around those folks should uh have access if if that's you know what we're yeah the the front line workers and things like that so we'll see we'll see how it goes maybe hopefully we can get back to uh to some level of of normalcy in the next you know few months you know I, it would be lovely. Um, yeah, I, I'm although, not optimistic, but uh, yeah, if that happens, great. I would love to see. Yeah, it. well, yeah, I'm an optimist, so I like to, you know, I'm, I'm, I, you know me uh, from the from the very beginning of this. Maybe even as wrong as I've been about some things, I've I've always been optimistic that we would uh, we would carry through and things would be would be okay on the backside of things, and and hopefully that's the case. I tell you what would help is if uh, some some certain people in in Congress would kind of get off the old asses and 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 get some relief out to some people. Uh, yeah. I think that would make a huge difference uh, over the next few weeks of what you know, governors and, and state legislatures are willing to do in terms of shutdown orders and things like that, or, or, you know, putting, imposing some more restrictions on people. I, you know, Kay Ivey came out this week and, and backed a business council of Alabama proposal to keep Alabama open or keep Alabama businesses open. And just, I mean, you know, really kind of petty. Um, and, well. uh, you know, it, it just, it, it flies in the face of, of everything that she's, she's done to this point, which has been, mm-hmm. you know, let, let's, let's worry about the data. Let's take it as it comes. Let's look at what we need to do. And, you know, I, and I feel like she's done a pretty decent job, uh, maybe not gone as far as, as I would have gone in some instances, but, right. uh, right. overall she's done a pretty good job of managing the whole thing. And that just kind of flies in the face of that. And it, and it seems like such a, it's like a pandering move meant to appease one particular section of, of, of society. And, you know, I, I'm not, that's not really the answer. The answer is, you know, Hey, look, let's look and see what we can do to make sure businesses can maintain themselves long term. Because if we have another run through this thing, man, where it turns bad again, those businesses aren't going to survive on the backside of this thing, no matter what you do. Yeah. I think it's, it's very premature. Not knowing what's going to happen, knowing that numbers are rising, cases are spiking, death rates are rising. It is extremely premature to say what you are or you're not going to do. The only thing that really makes sense is to just say, look, you know, we're going to respond to this on a daily basis. You know, we're monitoring everything daily and weekly. And we will make our decisions accordingly. That's the only responsible thing to say. Anything else. Sets, sets up the nation for more strife and more disappointment. Yeah, and, and you know, and her little tagline of, uh, well, you can't have a life without a livelihood. Well, you, you can. What you can't have a life without is life. Right. Uh, you know, and right. you, it, it doesn't mean anything if your job was open and you die. Uh, right. You know, it's, it's it's exactly backwards what she's saying. Yeah. Uh, you know, if if you have to go, if you're forced to go into work, uh, because they kept your business open and you uh, contract COVID because you're an at-risk individual and, you know, the health situation in this state being what it is. Uh, so, you know, that that's a situation there where, you know, uh, you, you got to you got to think about people and you got to think about and that's a that's a big problem within the Republican Party as a whole is being unable for them to put themselves in other people's shoes and in other people's situations. It's It's impossible for them to, to imagine a life unlike their own. Well, you know, I'm I'm glad you said that because I was thinking that not about uh, Governor Ivey so much or the state of Alabama, but but I, even though I think that does apply here, what we're talking about, what we've been talking about applies. 
I was thinking about this from the standpoint of the Republican, the the the, the proposals, the proposals that are coming out of the Senate and Congress. So you got you got Mitch McConnell, a man who's making nearly two hundred thousand dollars a year, uh, I believe. Uh, well, he's making a lot more than that, but yeah. Well, yeah. what I'm just talking about just uh, his, just his salary, senatorial yeah. salary. Yeah, mm-hmm. <clears throat> who's who's independently wealthy, like many of them are. Um, who is saying to people in his poor state, a state that is like Alabama at or near the bottom of all of the socioeconomic indicators of health and well-being for states, he's saying to them, uh, yeah, you don't need a stimulus and, and, and for unemployment, uh, 300, uh, I think he said 300 a week. I think it was the number mm-hmm. I saw. Um, and I'm thinking to myself when I saw that, I'm like, my God, how do you, how do you of all people say to the people of Kentucky, that's the best we can do for you when you are completely isolated from the economic woes of your state and from the challenges that the vast majority of Kentuckians are going to be dealing. It's just Mm -hmm. astonishing to me. Oh, yeah, it's it, it is so if you listen to what they say, it is so out of touch with the reality on the ground uh, with people. You know, I I I have personally, you know, I'm, I am somewhat out of touch with that reality myself because I've not really lost much in this in this pandemic. You know, um, uh, you know, we're, we're still doing fine here. Uh, but, if, you know, thankfully. Uh, yeah, yeah. you know, we, we have, there have been some instances in which that, you know, they're the business that my wife works for, for example, had talked about for a while, making some cuts, uh, you know, not necessarily cutting employees, but cutting salaries and things. And, mm-hmm. um, and so, but, you know, ultimately that didn't take place. And so, but there are, so, I want to say there was a survey not too long ago, two thirds of Americans, uh, working Americans said that they, are struggling at this point to pay their bills due to the due to the COVID crisis and don't believe mm. they're going to be able to make the, the next month's mortgage payment or, or rent payment. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, that's two thirds of America. You know, I mean, that's got to be some Republican people in there. And so that's what's always kind of confused me. I understand why these why the rich, you know, the rich white people. Uh, in in Congress and other places and business leaders, I understand why they are Republicans and why they vote Republican. I will never, I'll, I'll never be able to wrap my head around why some poor working stiff is a Republican. Uh, just uh, and you look at this pandemic and you look at the arguments that some rep- uh, Republican working people uh, at the bottom rungs of the economic ladder make, uh, and it's, I, I mean, man. You're cutting your own knees out, your own legs out from under you here at the knees. Mm-hmm. What what are you doing? You know, I I just can't I can't wrap my head around that, and it, because the proposals mm-hmm. are so ridiculous, and you look at what the Democrats have proposed, and every single thing would help these guys who are arguing against it. Yeah, yeah, it's hard to it's hard to fathom. I, I don't get it either. I have had some challenges. You know, I'm a small business owner. I don't work for mm-hmm. any. You know, I don't, I'm not on anybody's payroll. I, I have clients and I have business mm-hmm. partners. And, um, and I, I have to tell you, um, this has been a year of dramatic lows and also some dramatic highs. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it, but it has been a year where even with the highs, there still is a, I still go through, Josh, a real challenge 
in terms of just thinking about how do I position myself from month to month? Yeah. Uh, some months have been very easy. Some months have been very thin. But mm-hmm. I, but I, but I, I will say I've been blessed in that I haven't missed any meals, as, as most people can tell by looking at me. And, um, and, I, and I haven't, I'm not homeless. You know, I still have internet, obviously. You know, mm-hmm. so, I mean, I've been blessed. I mean, I've, I've been able to make it. But a lot of people, like you said, uh, not only do they have to deal with the uncertainties and the, and the ebbs and flows, uh, they actually are looking at, you know, Literally, how do we make it next month? Mm-hmm. And yeah, and it's... and the Democrats, I think, have. And I'm talking about Congress now, not you know Alabama. The Democrats in Congress, I think, have proposed, uh, you know, some things that would be helpful to all Americans. And the Republicans mm-hmm. seem really detached from that. Really detached. Yeah, yeah. It's a you know. Well, I mean, you can see where the House passed uh, passed the the next deal, the next stimulus package, back in July. Uh, you know, or June, and and it's set, you know, just just sat there for this amount of time, and and while I think even a lot of the House members who passed it would say, listen, we're open to some some cuts and some changes and some alterations, uh, you know, they also say, look, it's a bill, it's a starting point, let's do something here, and and the unwillingness of of Republicans to do anything uh, is is really kind of astounding, and the argument against uh, increasing the national debt. Uh, from the same group of people that added trillions and trillions of dollars to that debt through cuts for the wealthy, uh, uh, you know, a couple of years ago when things were running smoothly and nobody really needed anything, uh, it is really it really rings hollow. Uh, and uh, you know, it, it's just a I, it's a fundamental difference of uh, of priority, I think. And you can see. Day in and day out, where the where the Republican priority is on things, and it's not with the working class people uh, of this state or any other state, and it's you know it, it caters to those businesses. I mean, you you look at their priorities, the things that has the thing that that hung up a lot of the early uh, stimulus packages was them trying to get in a, a protection for businesses who forced workers to come back to work so they couldn't be sued. You know, uh, that, so that's where the mindset is, uh, of Republicans. And so, you know, and, and at some point, uh, I really kind of hope Democrats start to, to cash in on that in, in some of these races, because I don't think they, they focus on it nearly enough and, and provide examples of that and really, really hammer it home. But, you know, I, I tell you one, one of the other things, you know, in a, uh, in the interest of fairness, I guess, that we wanted, we did want to talk about was, uh, there was an appointment. before you go to that, let me just ask you this. Okay, go ahead. Did you see uh, this um, this picture of Rudy Giuliani uh, with his uh, hair dye leaking out of oh, his Oh, his hair dye rolling down his face? Yeah. I... <laughs> this is so crazy, man. This is so crazy. So this is the guy that the that the Trump that the Trump campaign has out representing its interest. A guy who is so inept that he can't even keep his hair dye situation together so that he doesn't look like a ghoul. It's literally uh, dripping down his face at a press conference. I meant to say, I meant to say earlier that we still have the squatter in the white house, uh, right. uh, refusing to, uh, to budge. 
uh, and, and I mean, and, and these lawsuits, these lawsuits, uh, for, they're one for 26 or 27 at this point. Uh, you know, and the, and the one victory they got from a lower court was later overturned. Uh, mm-hmm. so, uh, they're, they're completely frivolous on, for most, for the most part. Uh, they make wild, unsubstantiated claims about voter fraud that, that cannot be proven in any way, shape or form. Uh, law firms have quit on them because it, it's so outlandish and they don't want to be tied to this nonsense. Uh, you know, now you've got the situation in, in Michigan where Trump is, actively calling the people in Wayne County uh, to keep them from from certifying the election results in that county because a lot of black people voted. Um, and, you know, so obviously there's fraud there, you know. Right. I, I, right. Well, you know, what I think is extraordinary in terms of the lack of logic here is in an, in more than one case, uh, I want to think. I think the the if I'm not mistaken, the Secretary of State for Wisconsin, <clears throat> and I know the Secretary of State for Georgia, are Republican. Mm-hmm. So you're you're sitting here saying you're indicting the system, yeah, that is presided over by Republicans, but these Republicans, mind you, are saying uh, there's nothing to this. These Republican secretaries of state are saying there's nothing to this, but Trump and Giuliani are railing against fellow Republicans indicting their integrity. It's ridiculous. And then the courts, as you said, are throwing them out. It just goes to show how extremely bogus it is what they're doing, how there's no. And this is this really just boils down. This is voter suppression. It's Mm -hmm. another way to to implement uh, the things that the Voting Rights Act was supposed to protect black people from. Mm-hmm. This is just 21st century voter suppression. Yeah, and and it's it's whiny little children, uh, you yeah. know, uh, yeah. who who are unaccustomed to, to losing or not getting their way. But um, it's the tactic, Jock. Just oh, specifically, yeah. the tactic is a racist tactic. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I mean, mean, they're, they're whiny children. You see what they're leaning on. Yeah, yeah, you see what they're leaning on. They're they're leaning yeah. on the vilification of, of black voters and and the idea that anytime there are high, there's a high uh, percentage of, of black voter turnout, that there is something nefarious that has taken place. Mm-hmm. Uh, that there's cheating. That there's all the other stuff in the back. Oh, there's three hundred fifty percent turnout. Oh, look at this. There's a hundred thousand votes over here that wasn't there. And oh, they just forgot ten thousand ballots. Well, you know the place where they forgot ten thousand ballots, uh, or you know because they f- failed to upload one memory card, uh, was in the one of the reddest counties in the entire country where Trump won 80 some odd percent of the vote. And the people that were running the whole thing were all a bunch of uh, Republicans. I mean, it's Mm -hmm. over in Rome, Georgia, for God's sakes, you don't get more (laughs) redneck than Rome, Georgia. Uh, I mean, it just, you know, and it's so idiotic. The the claims it's like in Michigan, these people not certifying the election results. He lost by 160,000 votes. Get over it for God's sakes. You're not winning that election. You're not going to win that. And it's, there's not enough, election fraud in the world to overcome such a, a staggering figure of loss that he had. Not to mention that the dude's going to lose by 6 million votes in, in the popular vote. I mean, shut up. You He's know such what I mean? It's just, such a he loser. is a loser. And the people that back, keep backing him are losers too. And I mean, honestly, you, you, you sound like a bunch of moronic children. Uh, with this nonsense, it really is. It's just starting. It's really starting to tick me off. Some of the people, I, and I tell you, 
John Merrill is one of them that has really, really started to take me off because I know John Merrill and I know he knows better and I know what he's doing. Uh, you know, he's doing this to get some kind of cred for an office yep. later on down the line, yep. you know, and, and so he's just like trumpeting this nonsense about, oh, well, 100,000 votes just showed up. Shut up. You know that that's not what yeah. happened. You he's know, and you're smart enough to understand the process and how that stuff happens. As a matter of fact, so similar things have happened in this state, and he's had to go and deal with them and explain what happened. So, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. stop being an idiot about things. So, take the so, law, take the L, man, and go away, you know? So he's he's pandering, but then yes. to get to the topic that you wanted to bring up and that I wanted to bring up, you've got some Republicans who are actually have been acting in the best interest of the state. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think the one that we were going to talk about uh, today is Cam Ward, right? Yeah, I tell you what, you want to since we're already we're already running up against it here. You wanna you wanna get Molly in, and then uh, and then we'll come back and, and oh, do that okay. at the, at the yeah, close. Let's do and, and, let's do yeah, it'll be, it'll be a good good way to close. It'll be a nice, happy, upbeat closing. And we also have a we have a fantastic right wing note of the week uh, this week. I th- as a matter of fact, I think we might have had uh, our good friend Kenneth Copeland as as the right wing note of the week previously. Uh, but uh, <laughs> uh, we'll we'll have him as our our right wing note of the week. But let's right. tell you what, let's slide out. We'll get Molly in, and then we'll. We'll come back. We'll wrap this thing up after after her and and talk about Cam Ward and and decent Republicans that uh, they do exist. They, they, they do are exist. out there. Yeah, yeah. Not <laughs> enough. Right, of we'll them. be back. Not enough. Yeah, of not them, enough. You're right. Yeah. You're right. Yeah, we'll be back in just a minute. Alabama politics is. Welcome back to Alabama Politics This Week. David Person and Josh Moon. And uh, on uh, that bottom left square on my screen is the face of my good friend for uh, probably a couple decades now, Molly Secours. And Molly is the author of a book that I'm going to just hold up right here. Oh, that's right. Everybody can see see this. But anyway. White Privilege Pop Quiz, Reflecting on Whiteness uh, by Molly Secor. Molly, I want to welcome you to, um, to Alabama Politics this week, and I just want to say congratulations. This book has been percolating in your system and in your spirit for a long time, hasn't it? Oh, my God. Uh, decades. I mean, at least. Actually, I realize I've been saying two decades, but it's, it's actually closer to three. But definitely two decades. And before, one of the things, and you probably understand this, one tradition that I've learned in this last 25 years is whenever you start a conversation, especially to talk about something like this, you know, to sort of call on the ancestors and to those that came before who influenced whatever it is that you're sort of holding up. And in this case, we're holding up this conversation around whiteness and privilege. But there are so many people that are in this book that I feel like I have to evoke right now. Mm-hmm. And and those living and those not living, but um, W.E.B. Du Bois, um, Fannie Lou Hamer. Um, oh my God, there's so, there's so many, but 
people that, uh, if it weren't for Dr. Ray Winbush from Fisk University's Race Relations Institute, mm-hmm. or Eddie Moore Jr., who founded the White Privilege Conference um, mm-hmm. in Pella, Iowa, two decades ago, when there was probably one black man walking around Pella, Iowa, and that was Eddie Moore Jr., um, at a time when nobody could bear to hear the words white privilege, and he named a conference after it. Um, Tim Wise, who's obviously an activist and out there, and just so many people that influence Naomi Tutu, um, just people that have sort of held me up and walked me through this path so that I'm sitting here today with this book, um, because all of them were compassionate and patient and um, indulgent of my lack of awareness, uh, you know, 20, 25 years ago. So this this is a good point to segue into something that Josh and I were talking about earlier. And uh, Josh, Josh grew up in uh, Decatur, which is not uh, a bastion of, uh, of liberal thought by any stretch of the imagination. But he grew up, he didn't grow up with this, this uh, sort of uh, visceral fear of black people. <clears throat> We've talked about this, of, of black people. And so as I think about Molly, what you've put together here. First of all, when I talk about this visceral fear of black people that white people have as a white person, do you understand what I'm talking about? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Um, And do you feel that this that this plays into in any way this concept of white privilege as you lay it out in the book? The fear? Yes, of course. And and I really and I talk about this a little bit in the book. I think where I think there are a lot of fears, but I think the one fear um, that is very clear with people like myself who identify as white is that um, I think we know intuitively that racism was a tool that was used to uphold something that helped us and never really not with with conscious thought but it's always been in the back of the mind and i think that the fear is the mirror that's held up in the face of a black person who's reminds you of that injustice that's buried underneath all of this i mean i don't believe that white people i believe that white people can be unconscious about race but i don't believe um but I don't believe that we inside don't know. I don't, I, I think that it's, it's been pushed down for so long. And we're talking, I'm not talking about 20 years long. I'm talking about 400 years long. Mm-hmm. There's this conversation that happens about, you can't judge people in history on our modern day morals and ethics. You know, this whole thing of you shouldn't judge your ancestors too harshly that were slaveholders or participated overtly and obviously in the system. And um, I tend to believe that, uh, I mean, there were always people uh, all the way through history that knew this was wrong, that spent their lives committed to, you know, sort of reversing it, to undermining it. I mean, that's always had, it's not like people didn't know that it wasn't bad then. I mean, Mm that didn't understand that the system was at play. It's just that as humans, 
we it's we choose the path of least resistance mm-hmm. and i think over a long period of time couple centuries you know you just it's embedded it's in the water i mean we are we're swimming in this water and we're not aware that we're swimming in this water yeah. but we know that we need it to breathe yeah yeah uh let me let me ask you this question i probably should have led with this define for us what white privilege is white privilege is having unearned advantage because of uh, a social construct which affords advantages and um, benefits to one group of people over another group of people. And that one group of people is those who identify as white. It's not magic. It was very deliberate. It was systemic. And I mean, systematic. It was, you know, it was uh, ingenious. <laughs> I mean, and, and and racism is the tool to keep that in place. And in order to keep the system working, you have to, A, uh, cultivate the belief that it is right that one group of people holds sway over another. And you have to convince the people on the other side that they are unworthy. And that is what racism does. It kept people believing on both sides that this was the norm. If you would, uh, uh, could you go kind of like just an overview of, of the book itself, uh, you know, and, and kind of what you what you're trying, what you were trying to do with the book and, and, and what people take from it? The original idea for the book came. Uh, it was after Trayvon Martin was murdered. Mm-hmm. Um, and I wrote, uh, I wrote a series of questions. There were at the time, there were probably 18 or 20 and I called it the white privilege pop quiz, the test you can't fail. And I put it up on my website in 2012. Um, and to my absolute shock, I don't even, I didn't even have, you should have seen my website. It looks like it was built in the 1850s and you know, (laughs) nobody worked it. I had nothing going and a hundred thousand people over that year took that quiz. Wow. Yeah. Um, and had I known I was going to have a book someday, I Whoa. would have gotten their email addresses, but I didn't. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't doing it for any other reason. But um, anyway, then that's the first thing people ask me. Did you keep those email addresses? Um, but so I, I wrote that quiz and then I started writing the book. And it took me about a, um, it took me about a year to, well, maybe a little over a year to write the book. and. Um, I asked John Sigenthaler, who was, I'm sure you know who John Sigenthaler is. He's the former yeah. uh, managing editor and publisher of the Tennessean and the founder of the First Amendment Center. He was my mentor, uh, one of my mentors, along with Will Campbell and, and John Edgerton. And um, I had asked John to write the foreword for the book. And John Edgerton was going to edit the book. Well, after I finished writing the book, my mother, John Edgerton, and John Sigenthaler all died in a short period of time. Oh. Within, like, I think it was 13 months, 12 people very close to me like that died. And so I just, you know, I was a wreck. And I shelved the book. And then the following year, I started working on uh, the baseball film. And I just let the book sit there. And then I was like, oh, you know, Obama's in. Tim Wise is out there doing it. You know, Eddie Moore Jr.'s out there. Um, you know, Jorge Zabalos. Is out. I mean, all these people were doing this work. And I was like, oh, I can just focus on my film. Um, and then the George Floyd thing happened. And um, 
I just woke up one night and was like, this, there's still a need for this. Mm-hmm. Um, and the purpose to get, to get to your question, you asked me, I mean, the purpose of the book is very, sh- very short, 13 short chapters. And each one starts out with a pop quiz question. And I chose, I, I chose questions that I asked myself 25 years ago when I decided to commit myself to sort of exploring what this thing called whiteness was all about. And, you know, it was not easy in the beginning. I was, I was sort of resistant and we can talk about that later, but so the, it was what questions led me to where I am now. And what's really amazing is it's very, I mean, the book is very short. It's very simple. Um, and what I urge white people to do is to not read it over the weekend and think they got it. Mm-hmm. What I'm asked, what I'm hoping happens, and it looks like it's happening now, is people are choosing this for their book club reads. And I'm really happy about that because this book is meant for white people to gnaw on, to chew on, to think on. It's not about feeling bad. It's not about, you know, admitting horrible things about your relatives. It's about sort of opening up to some questions that will lead you someplace inside yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and every single question. And what I'm encouraged about is I have a really dear friend in California. She's white. She's been married to a man who's African-American for, I think she's been with him over 15 years. And she has written about civil rights. She's written a screenplay um, about the Freedom Rides. And she called me the first night after she got to chapter two, just in tears and said, the first two chapters, I've never asked myself these questions. Mm-hmm. And uh, they're very simple, but very profound when you sit in them. And yeah. to me, I think the, the, the gift I feel like this book is to other white people is to sort of lay it out for them. I, I wish someone had handed me this book 25 years ago. So that I could actually absorb and and to see how even if I'm a hip liberal white woman who donates to all the right organizations and volunteers my time, I can still participate in the uh, disproportionate number of black men in prison. Mm-hmm. And how do I do that? By not being aware that I am internalizing a basic fear. Coming back to you, Josh, you know that I'm internalizing this fear of black skin men, black skin mm-hmm. men in hoodies, you know, yeah. whatever that is, because if I don't have a handle on my fear, then I'm going to pick up the phone and call the police when I see some young black men walking through the alley with a basketball, mm-hmm. you know, who have hoodies on, uh, because, because that I'm charged about that. And I, I use that example because I attended a community meeting once where they were identifying young black males between 12 and 18. If you see them uh, and a black, a young black male wearing a hoodie between 12 and 18 years old, call the police. Jesus. I mm. wrote about that in 2000 and um, it was sometime in maybe it was 2007, way before Trayvon Martin. Wow. And Things got scarier on my house. I ended up leaving town for a month. Oh, so you're saying you, you, you had to leave town for your own safety, Molly? I had my um, my phone and my security system. I came home and they were both disconnected um, one time. And so mm-hmm. I wasn't sure whether it was that event or something else that I had written. Because at the time I was being published a lot by 
the Tennessean, the Nashville scene, the city mm-hmm. paper, I had a column and almost all my columns were some, you know, aspect of race, whether it was social, mm-hmm. you know, whether it was about criminal justice, education, healthcare. So what do you, what do you think about uh, Molly as it relates to the black response to white privilege? What do you think about the labeling of white women as Karens or Becky's? You know, I'm not much into a, I'm not much of a labeler, to be honest with you. And I understand the concept. I think the, I think the positive about it, 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 it has given a profile, a profile, raised the profile of behavior of white women that have, that has happened for a very long time. So while I'm not much for, you know, I, I, I've never called anyone a Karen, um, but I have called someone out for being steeped in their whiteness. Um, but I think that's what that is. And I, and I, so I think it's a useful, it has been collectively, culturally, uh, it's been a useful tool to identify. I mean, as we know, what what's, people are starting to see, which, you know, most, many of us have known for, for many, many, you know, well, I was going to say years, decades, centuries, um, that white women have played a pivotal role in systemic racism and the whole notion of, you know, protecting a white woman from, um, you know, a black man, from the dangers of, of, uh, black male predatoriness. Um, you know, that's something that has occurred and that's, you know, that's a good portion of why so many, you know, many men have been lynched because of it. Many men are in prison because of it. Um, and w- it is not just white men that are part of this. I mean, come on, 56%, is it 55 or 56% of white women just voted for Donald Trump? 57 yeah. or 58% of white men just, but I mean, it's not just white men. Mm-hmm. And the percentage of men who voted for a man who doesn't deem black people or black and brown people human, um, that percentage of white men went down. It went up with white women. So we can't, you know, dirt, when there were lynchings just, you know, how not, not that long ago, public lynchings where people would, you know, pack picnic baskets. White women were the ones that made the potato salad. Hey, yeah. Again, yeah. You know what I mean in talking about this, this isn't the major focus of the book, but these questions lead you to this the realization of these stories, and you realize how much because it is painful, how much we've cut ourselves off from the conversation and the acknowledgement that we're part of it that we've allowed we allowed it to continue because it is it's a painful realization but what you find is once you allow yourself to understand that you are part of it, we are part of it, the system, all these things couldn't be happening right now without our participation. But once you realize that you're part of the system, then you can do something about it. Doing something about it is as simple. Not everybody marches in the street. Not everybody's in politics. Not everybody's writing legislation, but everybody has neighbors and family and can disrupt some of these notions. I mean, for me, back then, I went to that meeting when I heard they were targeting young black males. I went to that meeting. I was called into that meeting by a black mother 
who told me these APBs were going out. This was back in the early 2000s. Um, I went to the meeting and said, raised my hand, and I said, well, could you give a description of the young black male you're looking for? And they said, we just did. And I said, no, you said a young black male with a hoodie between 12 and 18. Well, there's a world of difference physically between a 12-year-old and an 18-year-old. Is he six foot three or five foot one? Did he have any facial hair? You have called out an entire community. Not, this is not, you know, this is not a profile of an individual. You called out all of my neighbor, all the kids in my neighborhood now are at risk and in danger because of that APB you just put out. Yeah. And so yeah. that's how I and everyone in this room are participating in the disproportionate number of black men in prison. You know, once you start, I mean, and that's not saying anything bad about you. That's me just share. The reality is, is that if you play ignorant, your ignorance can cost someone else their life. You know, it, it seems to me, you know, a, a lot of cases that um, if you can have the conversation with somebody about this, that oftentimes there there's some level of agreement uh, that that is ultimately reached upon you know, with, with people understanding where they are. The problem often, though, is the resistance to even having the conversation or in this case, to even reading the book, uh, you know, and, and so I, I, how do you. Uh, you know, how do you get people over that hurdle, over that hurdle of saying, you know, I, I'm not a problem. What am I? I'm just living my life, going to work. I, you know, I don't want to be, I'm not a racist. I just want to, I don't want to be bothered with this. Uh, how, is there a way to get over that initial hurdle with people? It's a great question. And it's really funny because recently that hasn't been a hurdle mm -hmm. since the book came out. That's why I'm saying people are hungry right now. And I really think that because of, not only George Floyd, it's you list the last however many years that cell phones have been um, now become part of our everyday lives and are mm -hmm. part of, um, you know, they're part of the culture. And so now we've seen these people on video, you know, brutalized and murdered by police, other fellow human beings, and there's no denying it anymore. And so most, most compassionate thinking people i will say understand that there has something we have ignored in our uh, in our country and our culture and our communities for many 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 years that brought this to the forefront and you know you can't you, you can no longer ignore it when millions of people are marching in the streets worldwide it's not just didn't just happen in, you know, Kentucky and, Mich you know, wherever you, you it's happening everywhere. And so for that period of time during COVID, when millions of people were in the streets every day saying enough is enough is enough. And now people have the hunger for change and they don't know what to do. And that's why I think people are buying the book because people are hungry. Now, those 70 million that voted um, for someone who doesn't believe that black lives matter, they're not buying my book, yeah. Yeah. but their family members are giving them my book yeah. and they're yeah. at, inviting them into a conversation. And again, all you have to do is read the first chapter and you see that this is not a, I mean, I say it in the introduction, 
you know, guilt is wasted. This has nothing to do with white guilt. White guilt is something that someone throws up when they don't want to have the conversation. I, you know, I didn't have slaves. No one said you had slaves. What I am, what I am saying is I'm going to ask you some questions that help you see that just because you worked hard for everything you've ever gotten doesn't mean you haven't experienced cultural systemic privilege. Just, you know, that very notion of I've worked for everything that ever happened for me. I did. I never had any advantage, but most of it, most of the time it's because we're blind to it. And I give an example in the book and I'll tell Mm -hmm. you briefly. Now there's a guy who was uh, an attorney. He wrote to me very angrily after an article I wrote one time about whiteness and privilege. And this gentleman writes to me, he's very upset and says, um, you know, I don't have, I don't have white privilege. I worked my way through law school and blah, blah, blah. Uh, You know, I've never, I worked for everything I had and very adamant. So, you know, we went back and forth and I was trying to explain to him that nobody's saying he didn't work hard. Um, But what's interesting is, and I'm going to, I'm going to substitute his real name, but his name was um, Ralph Elliston III. Um, and, uh, and and that made me curious and I knew he was a lawyer. So I called the phone number. I looked it up in the phone book and I called the, the law firm. This was like in 1999. Um, I called the law firm and, uh, the person on the other end of the phone is this very Southern genteel Elliston and Elliston, how may I help you? Um, well, I had called at five 30 after hours. Well, it turns out I said, I explained who I was. I'm looking for Ralph Elliston. The the second he said, or the third, he said, oh, you must be the young lady corresponding with my son. So apparently they'd been talking about it in the office. This was Ralph Elliston. And it's not Ralph, but I'm making the name up. And it turns out after the brief conversation that Ralph Elliston, the first started the law firm. Then Ralph Elliston II came on board, and now the third. So it's a generational law firm. And this gentleman is very adamantly and seem, seems to be convincing, you know, convinced himself that he's worked for everything. Mm-hmm. Um, he could not see the connection that at the time that his grandfather started the law firm, Black people weren't even allowed to inherit property. So you couldn't pass anything on. So, you know, it was just those kinds of things. And once people realized that we're talking about systemic racism that had built in all of these ways to ensure that black and brown people never made it further than here, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And and again, it's just part of the privilege that Number one privilege is I don't have to think about this. In That's fact, right. my day to day ever. Born on third base, thinking you hit a triple. I got <laughs> exactly. it. I got it. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Which is why your book is such a. Uh, I think is such going to be such an important part of uh, conversations going forward about race and privilege. And I just, you know, it is an honor to know you. It was an honor to know you anyway, because we've just been great friends for years, but it's really an honor to see what you have done here with this book, White Privilege Pop Quiz, Reflecting on Whiteness by Molly Secor. Molly, before we go, you mentioned in passing, you know, just sort of in passing, you mentioned a film 
that you're working on. And you're not just an author, you're a filmmaker, you're an activist. Real briefly, before we run out of time, tell us about this this film that you are in the process of finishing. The film is a six-year-in-the-making endeavor. It's called uh, Scouting for Diamonds, The Invisible Heroes of Baseball. And it's the love story between scouts and baseball. And it's got everybody, if you're a baseball fan, you will absolutely recognize everybody in it. If you're not a baseball fan, you will fall in love with the scouts and the stories. Um, And um, I am hoping it's going to be out next year. Um, My co-producers are uh, Ryan Doyle Murray and Bill Murray. Hopefully Bill's going to be narrating, uh, but we haven't finished yet. Um, So we're, you know, we've got it. We've got it. We're in the last, you know, we're in the last inning. But um, and the name of the production company is Bottom of the Night Films. So cool, nice, cool, cool. But don't ever do that to yourself. Don't ever call your company Bottom of the Night Films because everything will happen in the last minute. <laughs> <laughs> I've learned a lot of lessons. I've learned a lot of lessons. But yeah. uh, and I do want to give a shout out my dairy. Very, very, very dear friend, one of the main scouts in the film, Gary Hughes, one of the most beloved scouts in baseball, is the reason everybody that came on board. I interviewed over 140 people, and almost every one of them, from Billy Bean to Tommy Lasorda to Willie Mays to David Dombrowski to, I mean, you name it, (laughs) Theo Epstein, Joe Madden, they're all in the film because of my friend Gary Hughes, who became the co-producer. And three months ago was diagnosed with a really brutal form of cancer and died um, not even a month ago. Mm, so sorry, Molly. So sorry. Yeah. I mean, his present, but I, I'm, I, I just give a shout out to him while I'm calling out ancestors because he's now an ancestor. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I'm sorry to hear that, but, uh, but I am excited about the film and I'm glad that he was able to open these doors for you. You know, I've, you know, of course I've, I've been awaiting the film just through talking with you over these, these years you've been working on it. But now that you tell me you've interviewed the great Willie Mays, I know I got to see this. I oh just, my God. It was the thrill. I can't even yeah. tell that day. He invited us. First of all, Willie Mays doesn't give interviews. Yeah. So I've heard, I've heard, yeah, I've heard he's notoriously that it's way. It's crazy. Yeah. We got the interview. It's just yeah. ridiculous. Yeah. Um, so we end up going, he invites us to the stadium. He comes from home. He's not been feeling well, right? He's, he'd been, he'd had some health issues. He comes and we interview him in his skybox at the stadium right. um, where there, you know, people are knocking on the door and bringing food and all kinds of stuff. And we finished the interview and he said, listen, I need to get home and go back. He went home to bed, didn't even Mm. watch the game. He went back uh, and his driver came and got him and they brought him home. And he said, you stay here and, and watch the game uh, and, you know, finish out and we'll have people bring you stuff. I mean, he was so kind and gracious and and sweet. And um, he walked out the door and my, there was only three of us. There was two cameramen and me. And he walked out the door and all three of us just fell crying. Mm. We had met. It it was amazing. I I had never felt so. I had just never been as, and I don't want to say starstruck because it was deeper than that, Mm. but the reverend just, there was, I mean, just being in his presence and he was, I, I got 
that Willie Mays was himself at 17, just like he is. He was like grounded in who he was from a very early age. Wow. That's so powerful. Can't wait to see that interview or at least the portions that will make the film and the film itself. And of course, we urge everybody to get the book White Privilege Pop Quiz Reflecting on Whiteness by my dear friend Molly hey, Secure. Wait, 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 wait. Yes, John. Uh, I was I was instructed to remind Molly that there is a book release. Oh uh, yes, on, uh, yes. on December the second. Yes. Uh, so yes. Yes. yes, on December second, there is a worldwide book release via Facebook Live on the Parnassus Books um, uh, Facebook page. And uh, it will be a conversation between me and LaTanya Turner, who is a journalist, broadcaster, and producer at um, Nashville Public Television here in Nashville. And um, it's at 6 p.m. Central. And all you have to do is go to Parnassus Books. Parnassus Parnassus Books in Nashville is, uh, they are the bookstore that put us on the map. We are number one uh, in that bookstore uh, right now, it's the, the book is at number one, and it's because of Parnassus Books. And I just urge everyone to support uh, their local mom and pop bookstores. And Parnassus ships all over the world. Of course, you can get this book in all the usual places that I'm not going to mention. <laughs> order it from Parnassus because I love, love, love them. And I just want to thank Karen and Anne and Patchett, who's uh, the uh, the. Um, and Patchett, the novelist, who has one of the most beloved bookstores in the country. Yeah, I traded that reminder for some of the inside stories on that uh, on the uh, baseball movie. So, okay, uh, you got um, it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> my friends are so sick of. They, but my friends can't believe I'm making a baseball film. No one can. So, if you ever want to talk baseball, you call me. I'm way in. Yeah, I, I think we did that for the, you know, what, 20, we we spent twenty minutes and they had to make us stop talking. So that's uh, we'll, I'll, I'll call you. Okay, Molly. Thank you, Molly. Good seeing you guys. All righty. Welcome back in Alabama Politics This Week. Josh Moon, David Person. Getting yeah. it done. Uh, got a week off next week. We're happy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Eat some food. Gonna have some fun. Binging. Gonna binge food and, and movies and sports. I love it. Ah, yeah. Love it. Some sports That's my tips. idea of a holiday, That's, baby. I love that. I say Iron Bowl. Assuming COVID doesn't wreck the Iron Bowl. We'll be, uh, yeah. yeah. I'm kind of hoping COVID does. That might be the only shot Auburn has. Uh, <laughs> Ouch! If COVID, yeah, if COVID could take out could take out a few of those Alabama players, some skill position players, we might hey, have a some, shot. Some good news for Auburn, though. I I just saw on ESPN a little while ago that uh, one of their players was uh, picked uh, top in the top. I think it was the number fifth pick in the NBA draft. Yeah, so yeah, cool. Isaac Coro, man, went number five to mm-hmm. uh, do the Cleveland Cavaliers. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's a uh, uh, it's a shame we didn't get to watch more of uh, of Okoro uh, last year. You know, the season was cut short, and he was he was really having a good year. He's a he's a old school kind of guy, man. He's a defensive player, and uh, he okay. can really he, yeah, they compare him a lot to uh, Andre Iguodala. Mm. Uh, and 
And so he's uh, he's that kind of versatile player guy. He, he probably will never be a superstar, maybe, okay. but uh, could be could be good enough to you know to be the top guy in a, in a small market or the second guy somewhere. And uh, I think maybe, he'll uh, have, yeah, may, pretty good career. Maybe a good sixth man or something. Oh no no! I think he'd be better than that. I think he'd oh, be, okay. he'd be a star. I think he'd be oh, okay. a starter. He just probably will never be. Uh, you know, he's never going to be Zion Williamson, so to speak. You no, know what I mean? he's never going to be that okay. that guy probably. But okay. you know, it could be wrong. I just uh, yeah, he he seems to be more of a uh, of a team kind of guy, kind of a second man, kind of like a like a Middleton at uh, at Milwaukee or, mm. or somebody like that. You know. Okay. Uh, okay. So yeah, yeah, uh, it's a uh, uh, we'll, we'll see how how it folds out for him, but uh, I I've, I have high hopes if uh, if only we could get Bruce Pearl to coach the football team, um, you know, it'd be nice. <laughs> <laughs> uh, all right, so uh, we mentioned before we had before we had Molly on uh, that we uh, we wanted to talk about uh, good Republicans. Yeah, <laughs> quote unquote. Uh, and, and, but I, I do say that it was sincerity when it comes to Cam Ward, because Cam, I, I like Cam Ward, who has been a state senator now for a while, was a state rep uh, for a few years before that. Um, and he is one of those rare people that uh, I think a lot of people on both sides of the aisle like him. Uh, you can go and you can have a conversation with Cam and he's going to legitimately consider what you're saying. Uh, you know, I, I got to know him pretty well through the, um, uh, the prison reform stuff that he was doing. Um, uh, I got to know him, um, pretty well, uh, through the autism stuff that he worked on. He worked on, on what was at the time a very unpopular, uh, uh, bill uh, among Republicans and, uh, the Republican, uh, hierarchy and business council there uh that forced insurance companies to to cover uh some some autism treatments um and he he took a lot of heat from his folks on that but he stood with them and uh and so i i like i like him a lot and you you people will never know probably until he retires all of the things that he did for prison reform Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and not just prison reform, but <clears throat> sentencing reform. Um, and it has led to, I'll, I'll put it this way. Alabama has probably released more prisoners over the last 10 years than any other state in the world. Mm. Um, even, you know, everybody hears about our overcrowded prisons and all that, but we have released uh, thousands, tens of thousands of people have, have been, and, you know, and you say that and people are like, oh, my God, the criminals are running the streets. And, and it's not, you know, at the same time, our, uh, our our violent crime rates and really all crime rates have dropped steadily. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that has not been an issue. Recidivism rates have, have fallen uh, as well. So that, that's not really been an issue either. Um, but what they did was they they very, uh, you know, under the radar went in and took away a lot of the um, mandatory minimums, uh, a lot of the things that had, that took sentencing discretion away from judges uh, where they could. Um, you know, they, man, some some of those bills, uh, one, one of them in particular, basically made it to where, and I'd have to go back and look at it, but it basically made it to where if the people voted no for something, they voted for it. Mm. Uh, and, mm. and that's the sort of trickery 
that they that they were forced to use. And, and it's a shame that it has to be that way. It's a shame that uh, doing good things, and because and I, I think that the majority of Alabamians would say that these are good things um, that, that have been accomplished by, by Cam and some of the people in the area of prison reform uh, or criminal justice reform. Um, I, I, would, I think they would say that, that they, these are good things, but they've had to keep them hidden for the most part because they are, uh, you know, kind of an Achilles heel in primaries with other hardline Republicans and, and especially in a county, you know, he's in Shelby County and, and that it really hamstrings him a lot in what he can and cannot say. Uh, and so it's a shame that's the case, but it is at least nice to have a guy like, like Cam who's out there who is willing to work. And there, there are a handful of other Republicans like that as well. Yeah, what I was going to say about him was that I remember when this whole prison reform discussion really ramped up here. And this, was, this started, what, maybe five years ago or something like that, five, mm-hmm. six years ago. And I remember my, how stunned I was when I learned that Cam Ward, a Republican, a conservative Republican, was leading the charge. So I began to look more into his role and what he was talking about. And I realized that the argument he was making was the only salient argument that could be made in this state, because this is a very punitive state. I think the high Mm -hmm. level of, uh, quite frankly, and I'm a Christian, I go to church, but I think, quite frankly, the right wing uh, nature of Christianity in our state is so intense and so extreme that uh, you, you have a very punitive mindset. When it comes to, uh, you know, people and their choices and, you know, unless it hits close to home, people don't have sympathy or empathy, unfortunately. Right. And I think that's mm-hmm. very disturbing. But nonetheless, um, he was making the very salient argument that the economics of what was happening with our prisons demanded change. And that was the argument that seemed to be resonating, uh, resonating with these conservative Republicans. It's about the economics. So mm-hmm. I thought, well, that's pretty smart. Now, I never thought, and, and I was glad. I just assumed that that was his position solely. And, and, uh, and I just thought, well, if, hey, if that's, what, if that's how we get people like him to champion this cause that some of us on the left have been pushing for for years, then great, whatever works. I didn't realize until reading your column this week that he actually had some deeper thoughts on this and that it was about more than just economics for him. So thank you for that, for enlightening me on that. Um, but, but, it, but again, that just goes to show, and I think your column is a great example of it, and I commend it to people to read. I think it's a great piece. Uh, it just goes to show that... Um, you know, we've got to be careful about demonizing people solely because of what political team they're a part of. Mm-hmm. We've got to be careful about demonizing people, even about what ideological team they, they have an affinity for, or they play for. Because the truth of the matter is, good people, decent people, can disagree legitimately about issues. Mm-hmm. You know, um, everybody's motivation isn't always 
you know, even though I'm extremely critical of right wing conservatives about virtually every position they take, I understand that, you know, what drives all of them isn't a hatred for black people. Now, there's some mm-hmm. I think that do hate black people. I think there are a whole lot of them who are white supremacists, mm-hmm. you know, and who are and who have been drink who, and who are drunk with the with white privilege. Mm-hmm. But but having said all of that, I still think that there are people and I think and, and I think your column, I think, points us in this direction, Josh. There are people who truly um, just have another point of view and they and they and they see a different way. They analyze a problem differently than than we do on the left and they seek to solve it differently. That yeah. doesn't mean that they're hateful, spiteful, evil people. No, it doesn't. I, although I'll say, you know, what 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 bothers me most is not um, uh, an ideological difference or, mm-hmm. or a philosophy that differs from mine. It's that it's the dishonesty in in, mm-hmm. in a lot of people mm-hmm. and, and what they say and what they know to be untrue. That's the reason why it makes me so angry about you know, that I mentioned earlier about John Merrill. Yeah, uh, you know that that really. It's, you know, it just it really, it really pisses me off when people take something that they know to be untrue and they use it as as a wedge to benefit themselves sure. and to anger other people unfairly against, you know, especially something as sacred as, as elections, uh, you know, in this in this country. But, uh, you know, and that's my problem overall with a lot of 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 Alabama Republicans is that we're in this one party state now and we've been pushed so far to the right by, you know, because they have to keep eating their own in, in this thing that you just squeeze out the middle altogether. So you don't get a guy like, uh, like Cam Ward or Dick Brubaker or some of these other ones who could, who, you know, the, the, the Democrats could go to with, with serious matters and have a discussion with them and figure out ways to get it done. Now you just have this screeching nonsense half the time where they, you know, rail just for the sound bites that they can present in a campaign ad. And that's what bothers me a lot about them. And, you know, for somehow or another, Cam and, and some other people as well, you know, Jim Hill is one as well, which you would never think, you know, if you look at Jim Hill, Jim Hill looks like a conservative Republican. Yeah. Uh, you know, he's a what does that mean? What does that mean? He looks like, uh, I mean, you're, he's an old gray haired white dude that, I mean, he looks like he's either going to be, uh, the most hardline conservative Republican or the guy who's the leader of the deacon board that keeps firing the, uh, the preacher, uh, because he's not, you know, <laughs> biblical enough. I mean, honestly, uh, it's look, okay. if you cast him as hardline conservative in a movie, he would fit perfectly. Mm, um, okay. but, but former judge, he has done some great work with Cam on on criminal justice reform here and, and a particularly juvenile justice reform. Mm. Uh, you know, and they're trying to push through a lot of things now. Uh, you know, there, there are some bills that Jim Hill is actually sponsoring now. He's already pre-filed uh, to go in that would add again, add discretion to judges to get rid of some of these stupid mandatory minimum sentences that we have here that don't solve anything. There's never been one crime that has been deterred because somebody started to go rob something. Wait a minute, wait a minute. This is going to be my second, but not my third strike. So I can go ahead and, you know, nobody's ever thought about that. It's nonsense, you know, and, and so it's not deterring anything. And you're, the only thing you're doing is making it, you're making more slaves to the system here that uh, this criminal justice system that we have. And, and so it, it, that's, if we could get to this point to where 
this nonsense didn't matter. And people actually cared about true, meaningful things in their lives and in the lives of the people around them, then I think we, we could get somewhere. But they don't. You know, it's, and that's the problem is too often this nonsense is rewarded. Well, this is a grand tradition in American politics writ large and in state politics. Look at what George Wallace did. George mm-hmm. Wallace, when he ran against, uh, George Wallace ran as a progressive, a progressive <laughs> back in the 1940s. And then when he was beat by somebody who was to the left of him, it was 30s or 40s, I can't remember, one of those decades. And then he was beat by somebody who ran as a as a hard line segregationist. And George Wallace, uh, at least the mythology is, George Wallace reportedly said, I'll never be out again. Mm -hmm. And so then he started running. As far to the right on and 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 as hardline uh, on the segregation issue as he could, and of course yeah. that's what you know lifted him to power. He pandered to the worst part of uh, of white Alabamians, and uh, they and it and it built his political career. Uh, same thing with uh, you know you think about somebody like Lee Atwater. You know Lee mm-hmm. Atwater late in life confesses that, you know, they realized that they couldn't use the N-word anymore, so they had to come up with a different way of invoking the same emotions in white Republicans and conservatives without using the N-word. So what did they do? They started talking about welfare queens. They started talking about um, uh, other issues that would appeal to the same sensibilities and create the division that they needed and the galvanizing that they needed, uh, you know, by appealing to the fears of white people about black people. Well, so yeah, it's a, it's this Reagan is a grand approach, tradition. You know, the welfare queen, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's a grand tradition. This is yeah. a grand tradition. This is, unfortunately, this is what a lot of white politicians have subscribed to in America and in the state of Alabama. It's just the truth. Yeah, it's a fact. It's and, a historical and, and fact. In a lot of ways, it's exactly like what we talked about earlier about the with, with what's happening with the votes, uh, with the election situation. You know, it's uh, they have used this idea of allowing if you allow all of these black people to vote, there's just going to be fraud and chaos everywhere. You know, and mm. they've played on that for years and years and years, and also. It also kind of goes then back into the same problem with law enforcement that you have uh, within the black communities because, you know, black people have been so vilified uh, for so long. You know, these black animals were attacking out, you know, our poor mm-hmm. white women, you know, and these these crazy stories uh, that were, you know, folk legends in in white communities all over the place that led to these these the irrational fears that so yeah. many there. Listen, let me tell you right now. I could tell, I could go to a, a, a party of all white people and tell the most outrageous nonsense about black people. And they would buy, if it was a fear tactic, they would buy it hook, line, and sinker. It, I mean, the, the stories that people, came man? out. What's wrong with your people? What's wrong? I, with I don't know. I, listen, I try. I try. I do, I've done all I can. But, you know, it. it but this what's like at the, the root of that, though, really? I mean, seriously. Th- this, is, this is exactly what's at the root of it. It's, it's These stories have been told for generations. And so this this fear is ingrained in so many white people. Uh, and, and they have segregated themselves away from black communities uh, in their own neighborhoods and in their own schools. Uh, you know, they've kept their children away from other black kids purposefully. 
You know, they've done this over the course of so long that this sort of thing is, is just ingrained, this fear. You know, you fear what you don't know. Uh, you know, I was fortunate enough in my uh, in, in my schooling here in, in Decatur, Alabama, because we didn't have very many private schools or, or anything else. Everybody went to the same two high schools and those mm. high schools were essentially split, uh, you know, 55, 45, you know, somewhere around in that area uh, on, on a racial makeup. And so I had a ton of black friends. I had, a ton, you know, I played basketball and, and it was, you know, we had a, I never had a problem. I never had that fear, and I, I can't comprehend it now. And and maybe that's led to the well, way that I think. You well, know, but I I got, I got to think it contributed in some way because I have a lot of friends who I grew up with who didn't have those experiences and who now feel a completely different way. Well, I would also assume, Josh, and I could be wrong. I you know, but I'm but I would also assume that that <clears throat> you know we in the black community talk about how. Racism is uh, is caught, uh, you know. It's it's sort of taught. It's it's something that happens at the um, uh, you know at, at at the most intimate level. So I'm saying all this to say, while your high school experience certainly mm-hmm. helped, I would also assume that there was something going on in your home with your parents that that prevented you from from having the worldview that a lot of your, your fellow whites have and, and your parents and your family are to be commended for that. Well, I, I think maybe some, some of that is true. I think, I think some of them still held, you know, I mean, let's you know, be honest where we, where we're all growing up, you know, in, in this time and in, in Alabama and stuff. And so I think that, that there were probably still some prejudices held there, but I do know that, you know, I worked, you know, my grandparents owned a, owned a business in, in Decatur and, and I worked for them and, you know, in doing that work, I worked alongside with, uh, with a lot of black people, uh, there that worked for them over the course of several years, uh, there. And, you know, and I always heard from them, isn't it? They're good black people. They're bad black people. They're good white people. They're bad white people, you know? And so, well, you know, Josh, that is know. a hell of a lot better yeah. than, than what is taught to a lot of white children. You and I both yeah. know that. Oh, so yeah, no, that's, that's you're right. That's, yeah. yeah, you're, you're right. I, I it's just, you know, I, it's, but that is, I, I never, I was never taught to fear anybody mm. like that. And, mm. uh, and I've never had, that, and I, I can't, you know, when people tell these stories, you know, there was all those stories back, uh, you know, that Black Lives Matter were coming into Montgomery and that, and they were going to burn, they were going into, into the rich and white neighborhoods and they were going to burn houses down. People believe that. And I mean, what are you talking about? You know, I mean, I, and I, it was so idiotic to me. I couldn't wrap my head. But people I know and people who I respected believe that hook, line and singer, that, that they were they were going to have these bands of black people coming through their mm. neighborhoods. And, 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 and that's just one well, example of it. You well, know? you know, in the black community, we laugh at that sort of thing, too, but for a different reason, because we know that when it comes to uh, the kinds of actions that black people have taken, rarely have black people gone into a a white neighborhood and done anything. Mm -hmm. Rarely have black men done anything to white women. But it it is historically documented that bands of white men have yeah. gone into black neighborhoods and 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 uh or just in the communities period and terrorized black people burned crosses 
uh, you know, lynched people. All yes. of that is documented. It's documented historically that white men routinely used rape against black women. Routinely. This is documented stuff. So to us, this is just when we hear we hear about this white fear, we think, well, hell, that's just projection. That's just mm-hmm. psychological projection. That's 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 bigots in the white community. And notice I, I, I'm singling out the bigots. I'm not saying all white people, but that's mm-hmm. bigots in the white community projecting their dysfunction, their psycho- psychosis, their criminality, their hatred mm-hmm. onto us when it's really yep. them. Oh, there's no doubt. There's no doubt. I don't. That's always been my argument. It's always been why would why would you fear them instead of the other way around? Right. I, don't, I don't. You know. That's always uh, look look at historically the the documented instances of of real terror. Right. And it's not going the, the, towards us. It's the other way. Right. It just doesn't. It's never really made any sense to me. But that you know, like, you know, uh, maybe we uh, we we've run it. We're running out of time. So we should have we should have started this earlier. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but listen, I, uh, we do have, and thankfully, we're not going to have to spend you know much time on our right wing of the week because oh, no. it's just I don't, I don't think we even really need to explain the the clip of this right wing nut uh, Kenneth Copeland, uh, and I, I I just you know I don't understand people have given this man enough money to buy a private jet and. I don't, I don't know what you're doing, guys. I don't, there's so many, there's so many better things you can do with that money. So many better things you can do with that money. Uh, and that's, that's going to be our moment of Zen leading out for your Thanksgiving <laughs> holiday. Uh, and, uh, and, and we'll slide out of here, uh, for me, you know, happy Thanksgiving and you guys have a, uh, have a safe time. And, and if you're traveling, be safe doing that, uh, and try to keep a mask on whenever you can and, and not kill anybody's old people, please. Absolutely. Be safe, be well. And uh, if you want, you can also be vegan. I just thought I'd throw that in there. <laughs> I know most of y'all ain't going to do that. And that's cool. That eat your turkey or your ham or whatever you're going to do. As for me, yeah. I'm going to be vegan, which I uh, I am always anyway. So yeah, well, well, I'm going to be a meditarian. Uh, yeah, do and, thing, um, man. Do yeah, thing. I'm going the other way. I'm not killing yeah. those poor plants. They've done nothing to nobody. <laughs> <All right>. uh, <laughs> I'm not killing those poor plants. I can hear I'm them screaming. Kill the plants, yeah. No, I'm not kill a turkey, but I'm not going to kill any plants. That's right. No. I ain't pardoning any turkeys over here, baby. Uh, Donald Trump or the ones I. So, uh, <laughs> all right, that's going to do it for us. We're going to slide out of here, and, uh, uh, and we'll see you guys in a couple of weeks. Happy Until Thanksgiving, everybody. The media said what? <laughs> the media said Joe Biden's president. Ha, 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 ha.